morning. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Um, if you are visiting, I know the disappointment of wanting to see <laughs> the preacher of, that is normally at the church, and then you get the sandals. Uh, but I am happy to be here with you, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5 this morning. So if you could turn to Revelation chapter 5 with me. And when you're there, go ahead and stand. We'll read it together. I am going to read the whole chapter, so if you, need to, if you need to sit, I understand. But if you're able, let's stand and look at Revelation chapter 5. As We're, we're jumping into a spot, and, and just so we know that the scene is that we're in God's throne room. And the time is that we are looking at the culmination of all of history. So that's where we're at as we walk into Revelation 5. Let's, let's read it together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb. Standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And God, we pray that this morning you would stamp this moment on our, on our minds, stamp it on our hearts, make it what we look forward to, the day when Christ alone is exalted, when Jesus brings history to its culmination. May we focus on him, may he be our hope and our security, the one we trust in, the one we look to. Help us to know him more today, to worship him more, because he is worthy. We want to know you. Please help us. Please help me live. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. And 
as we get into our verses, I want you to just imagine a day when you looked forward to something, or maybe something you're looking forward to now. Uh, maybe this would have been a wedding day, or the birth of your first child, or the day a certain movie came out, or uh, let's see, the end of the semester when school school's about to be done, right? When school's about to be done, or maybe waiting, saving up to buy something. We love to have something to look forward to, right? And think about how that day or that moment impacted your life. Maybe you went on a diet. Maybe you set goals that you were going to complete before that day came. Maybe you daydreamed about that day or prayed, God, just make it come faster. Please, just make the day come faster. When you're looking forward to something, it affects how you live and how you think and what you value. And the passage that we're looking at today is meant to do exactly that. It's meant to, to be a moment that we look towards that changes how we live and think and what we value today because we are looking forward to this special day. But looking forward, it does more than just change how you think and how you live. It also steadies you. It makes you steadfast. It, when life is hard or work is grinding or the kids are overwhelming, marriage is bitter, maybe you've been tempted to become harsh and cynical as the years have gone on and life isn't as shiny and new as it used to be. Maybe the daily grind feels like it's actually going to grind you away. Or you have to grapple with disease, death, or grief, or loneliness, or just the realities of living in this world. We need something to look forward to. We need an anchor. We need a north star that will guide us as we walk through this life. And that's what this passage gives us today. Not just individually, but as a church. We've been talking about our values, right? We've been looking at what our church values. And we need to be asking ourselves... How do we not drift? We need a landmark or a point of reference, something to keep us from drifting because our values are upstream. It, it's not easy. We have our own sinful nature working against us, the world working against us, Satan working against us. He wants to destroy the church. And if we just drift, we'll drift away from those values. So how, how do we not drift? This, this passage is that North Star for us, that moment that all of history is moving towards when all of it will be summed up in one person, one worthy individual. And we're going to see today that Jesus alone is worthy to be the center of history because of who he is and what he does. That's the whole outline for today, who he is and what he does. And when we see that he's worthy because of who he is and what he does, it helps us remain faithful as a church family and as individuals. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at that moment when history reaches its culmination and that day when the whole universe will know that there is one person and one person only that is worthy, that fulfills every detail of God's plan. So we need to get a running start. We need to see how the stage is set for us. We need to look at Revelation 4 before we jump into Revelation 5. John has just written letters to the churches, and now God is giving him a vision of what is going to happen. Look in chapter 4, and I'm just going to read most of the chapter for us. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. This is a familiar scene. 
a th the throne room of God. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Can you picture the scene? Can you picture the throne with the thrones around it and all these colors and lightning and thunder? Still in verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John has just set the stage for us. He has brought us into God's throne room. And what he has done is something really interesting. I want us to see this. You know when you put a puzzle together, you start and you try to get the border, but no one ever, well, I've never gotten all the border. You kind of get chunks. And someone works on a chunk over here, someone works on a chunk over here, and then eventually you're going to have to put them all together to get the full picture. What John does here, we're not able to look at every detail of it. I would love to. But uh, he is pulling language from three different prophets in the Old Testament. He pulls from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And if you'll remember, each of them had a very special vision that sounds a lot like Revelation 4. They all anticipated this moment from a different angle. Isaiah was waiting for someone who could make God's people holy and who could put down every idol. Ezekiel was looking for someone who could give God's people a new heart so they could be near to him and have the spirit inside of them. Daniel was looking for someone who could be the ultimate king of everything and rule the universe forever. And so by pulling on all these different puzzle pieces, John is doing this. He's saying, this is the moment they all waited for. This is the culmination. This is the moment when the Messiah, the crown, will be shown to be the only one worthy in all of history. So that's the setup that we are walking into this morning. Is everyone with me? My wife said go slow. You, you go too fast. And I know that she's right. So now the stage is set, but there's a few more pieces that John's going to fill in for us. Look in chapter 5. In verse 1 it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So we need to ask, what is this scroll? What's the big deal? What's the point of it? Why focus on it? Well, two sources that kind of help us understand what this is. Well, really three. Once the scroll gets opened in the rest of Revelation, each seal that's broken, a judgment comes on the earth. So there's something about this seal that's tied with the person worthy to open it can carry out the judgments that God has for the earth. Also, if we look back at Roman 
history, if you had someone's will, a really important document, something that you get a title to a home or a title to their money, you would have a scroll that was sealed with seven seals on it to show that this is official, this is legitimate, and nobody can get into it if it's sealed seven times. And if they have, you'll know because they're all broken open. So what do we have here? This is, this is the title to the universe. This is the title to the whole world. And we have that actually confirmed in chapter 11 because once Jesus breaks all the seals open, heaven says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So this scroll, the one worthy to take this scroll is the one worthy to inherit the universe and to carry out God's judgment. That's why this is so important. And look at what the angel asked in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the question, right? Who is worthy? And I think we know the answer, but it's answered for us in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy to do this. No one in heaven, this is talking about angels, there's no one, uh, even though an angel could be perfect and powerful and wise, and maybe they even were in the presence of God, they're not worthy to open the scroll. No one under the earth, this is, obviously no demons could do this. No one in all of creation, no one on the earth, no man or woman, even though Mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation. They were not worthy. No kings or rulers or presidents, no generals or war heroes, no wise gurus, great minds, Olympians, athletes, dictators, not Einstein, Aristotle, Xerxes, Nebuchadnezzar, Buddha, Alexander the Great, not Gandhi, Shakespeare, Napoleon, Michelangelo, Bach, Mozart, or Mother Teresa. None of them worthy to open this scroll. And if you took all of our accomplishments as humanity, put them together, they wouldn't to fulfill God's plan to bring all of history to a culmination. The picture is like a scale. You have a weight on one side of the scale, and you're wondering, what's, gonna, what's a value that will weigh it out? Nothing. Step one. But wait, look in verse four. And, and I began to weep. This is John. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is he weeping? Well, think. What if I told you God's plan won't be completed in the end? There will be wrongs left unrighted. There will be injustice never brought to justice. All of what you've hoped for as a believer really won't come to pass. And think about John in his situation. He walked with Jesus. He saw him. He saw him after the resurrection. And now in this moment, he thinks, God's plan won't be completed. It's been thwarted. Wouldn't you cry? But look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the only one worthy to 
take the scroll, to open it, to judge the earth, to carry out the Father's plan, to inherit the universe as his possession. We said that we were going to look at two reasons that he's worthy. We're going to look at who he is and what he does. And so we're, we're looking now in this, in verse 5, we're going to see who he is. That's what we're going to look at. He's worthy because of who he is. And when we see these things, they're going to help us remain faithful as a church and as individuals. We're going we're gonna to look at who he is based off the names that he's given. So let's look at verse 5 and look at what he is called. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the camera has just panned out over all of creation and said no one is worthy, not a single person. And then it comes all the way back in and says, no, but there, there is one worthy. And now that camera is going to pan back across history. Lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference back to Genesis 49. But to fully get what John's saying, we gotta go all we gotta go back to Genesis 1. So we're gonna walk through from there. In Genesis 1, God creates the world and it was perfect. Perfect, very good. But by Genesis 3, sin has entered and humanity has fallen. Our relationship with God is destroyed, our relationship with one another is destroyed. Death comes in, and we are all destined for hell from birth after that. But within only 10 verses, God gives the first glimmer of hope. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, he's talking to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the first time that God said, someone will come that can beat the devil. Someone will come that can crush the serpent's head. God will win in the end. And so from here on out in Genesis, you're narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. Who will it be? This is why when you read your Bible, especially in Genesis, you hear over and over again, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. This is why you have genealogies all over your Bible. Why the long list of names? Because everyone's looking for who is the one. This is why Noah's parents say, hopefully in Genesis 6, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. But Noah was not the one. And Moses is so careful throughout Genesis to narrow it from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then unexpectedly in Genesis 49 to Judah. In a prophecy, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Genesis narrows all of humanity down to this one tribe of Judah, that someone will come who will be like a lion, a king, a royal, lion-like, kingly, ruling authority, the lion of the tribe of Judah that will fulfill the hopes of God's people for a true king. We can reverse the curse of Genesis look, he's not just called the Lion of Judah. He's also called the Root of David. So Genesis narrows it down to this tribe of Judah. But then 
God preserved that line throughout the rest of the Old Testament as he leads his people out of Egypt in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. And even in the really dark period of Judges, he uses Ruth and Boaz to keep this line to the Savior going. And they were the grandparents of King David. And then in 2 Samuel, God makes a promise to David. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we're down to one family. All the way down from, from Adam, all the way down to Judah, all the way through to King David. A, a king will come from David's line whose kingdom will last forever, who will be the true king. But if you read a little bit further in your Bible, David failed miserably. His house falls apart. If you remember Absalom and, and how David's actually driven out into the wilderness. And one of the prophets, Amos, actually describes the, the royal dynasty, the house of David. It's not a house anymore, he says. It's a broken down tent out in the wilderness. And so David's line is like a, like a tree that's chopped down. It's almost dead. Maybe, maybe God's promise has actually failed. 750 years go by. Think back to the 1300s. That's how long it's been. And hope, hope is all but lost. But suddenly, a root, a shoot, a branch springs up. The line has not failed. God's promise has not failed. Jesus, the root of David, the one with the right to rule, comes. And now do you see why Matthew starts with a big, long genealogy? He's picking up on Genesis and saying, he's here. The king has come. And this is why in Matthew 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into the wilderness and proves that he is the true king. He puts that broken down tent of David's dynasty. He puts that on his back, proves like a true king that he can defeat Satan, can defeat temptation, can defeat sin. And he puts all of the prophecies and hopes of the Old Testament onto himself, carries it to the cross, and completes every single detail. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. That's our Savior. That's the Lion of Judah. That's the root of David. He's the King of Kings. So Jesus is the Lion. He's the root of David. Look at verse 6, though. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Not just the lion, he is the lamb. And the lamb symbolizes the exact opposite of the lion. The lion is kingly, royal authority, right to rule. We call the lion the king of the jungle, right? The lamb, though, this is meekness, obedience, humility, innocence. The way Isaiah puts it is that the coming Savior was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the lamb that was killed, but notice he's standing, crucified, but risen again. He bore our sins on the tree, and by his wounds, we are healed. God poured out his wrath that should have followed on you, fallen on you and on me, and 
Jesus was able to swallow hell for us on the cross. Now, before we move on, he's the lion and the lamb. Jonathan Edwards said that he is the mingling of diverse excellencies. I don't, we don't talk like that anymore. But what does he mean by that? Diverse, very different, far apart, but excellencies in Jesus. Think about this. You find all of the most incredible qualities to the max. Like you find in no one else. There's no one like him. Think about it. He is infinitely high. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the ones who will receive glory forever. And yet infinitely low. He humbled himself. He became a man, humbled himself to death on a cross, to die a criminal's death. He is perfectly just. Not a single sin will go unpunished. And yet perfectly gracious. He's infinitely loving and yet infinitely wrathful. He is infinitely powerful, but infinitely meek. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. No one has to tell him anything, but he's infinite. Eternity will not be long enough to discover how beautiful Jesus Christ is in his person, in his diverse excellencies. He's everything we ever hoped for in a king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Look in verse 6 again. With seven horns and with seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right, first, seven horns. Seven horns draws from Daniel. If you remember in Daniel, he uses horns a lot to talk about power and kings. And seven is a number indicating completeness, total. So it's saying that this lamb has total and complete power. He has the right to rule. He, has, uh, he is the one that Daniel saw coming on the clouds of heaven that would receive authority to rule forever and ever. And so the horns signify his total power. The eyes are trickier because look at the phrase which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I thought there was one Holy Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. So what, what do we do with this? Well, it, it is a direct reference back to a section in Zechariah, Zechariah 4. And the point there is that God's spirit, his one spirit, is sent out into all the earth. Remember, seven is, is about completeness, totalness. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his view. The spirit knows all, sees all, searches all. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, prophesied that the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The mark of the true king is the Spirit. And that is exactly what Jesus has. He has total power. Spirit sees all, he knows all. So who is this Jesus? Who is this one that's worthy to be the focal point of history? We said we were going to look at who he is and what he does. Who he is is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah that comes through the line of David, the root of David, full of diverse excellencies. He is the servant that Isaiah saw that would be high and lifted up. 
filled with the fullness of the Spirit. He's the one that Ezekiel hoped for that would bring God's people near to God, put his Spirit in them and give them a new heart. He's the one that Daniel saw coming on the clouds as the king that would be the ultimate king of everything and rule forever. That is who Jesus is. That is the one worthy. That is the one that we question, praise, exalt, love, worship. We've looked at who he is. Worthy to be the focal point of history because of who he is and because of what he's done. I'm going to continue reading in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Uh, side note before we move on. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The word prayers, as a believer, are a sweet smell to God. They're not forgotten. They're not ignored. They're not cast by the wayside. They are a sweet smell. He doesn't forget them. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Hear that? What's the reason? Why is he worthy? Worthy are you. Why? Because for you were slain. And then the result of that. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So why is Jesus worthy? He's worthy because he was slain. He was killed. And, but what did he accomplish? He purchased a people for God. He bought us. The word, therefore, ransomed, is you could use it in Greek. You could use it to go to the marketplace. It was, you could describe the marketplace with this word. You could describe that buying something. You buy olives. You buy a new robe. You buy a house. But in the New Testament, it's talking about us. We are what was purchased. And the payment was the blood, the life of the most precious individual in the entire universe, God's son. Here, it, it's a little bit like this. You, a lot of you may have heard this illustration. It's quite common, but it's really helpful here. I'll read it to you. An orphaned boy was living with his grandmother when their house caught fire. The grandmother tries to get upstairs to help him, but she dies as she tries to help him. The boy keeps crying out, and eventually a man hears it, and he climbs up an iron pipe on the side of the house. The boy, he grabs the boy out of the house and saves him. Now, we said that boy's an orphan, so later in the court, they're trying to decide who's going to get custody of this boy. And lots of different people come forward. They present their arguments. They give reasons why they could give, provide a good home for this boy. But then someone comes up, unassuming, hands in his pockets, walks up. And he shows, his he shows the judge his hands. Shows him the scars on his hands. And everyone realizes that was the man that climbed that hole. And he doesn't need any other argument than the scars on his hands. They give him the boy and he takes him home. That's, that's what happens when we look at Jesus, the slain lamb. When we see the scars on his hands. That he bought us. That he purchased us. That he was the one that rescued us. And 
this is the gospel. There is no other hope outside of the sacrifice of Jesus. There is no other way to heaven. You cannot get there through Allah or Buddha or Moses. You can't get there by positive thinking or meditation or by believing in yourself. You can't get there by becoming one with the universe or having some secret knowledge. And you definitely can't get there by being good. The gospel is not that God lets people who are good into heaven, or more good, their good outweighs their bad. The gospel is not that God lets those into heaven, anyone who had sincere faith in their religion. Those of us who are Christians in this room are not Christians because we were smart or clever or better or anything different than anyone else. The gospel is that we were all utterly lost, hating God, fighting him, running away from him, loving and worship, worshiping created little things instead of our creator. But because he is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. He bought us. He took the eternal fury of God against our sin on that cross and was raised from the dead and is powerful to rescue anyone who puts their faith in him, their trust, their allegiance. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves, who have no one else to trust in, who reject any trust or hope in their own goodness. Or ability to get to heaven. That's the gospel. And, and by the way, before we go forward, he ransoms people in verse 9 from every tribe and language and people and nation. One of our values as a church is God confident outreach. That verse God's people, God has people in every tribe, in every language, in every nation. We want to take the gospel everywhere we can, into every crack of the city of Orange and emanating out from there as far as we can go. Our neighbors, our friends, everyone, because we don't know who will believe. So we want to tell them the message of the gospel. And that is why we are so intent on missions as a church. What else he has done? Verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, what's the point of him making us priests? Why is this so amazing? Well, normally a priest is someone that goes between the people and God. So you'd have all of us, and then maybe one priest that goes, talks to God to the people, and, and so on. But what if suddenly we were all priests? Now we can all go right to God. Now we can all go directly to him. That is what Jesus purchased with his blood, direct access to the Father. That's what we live in right now. You can pray right now, and the Father hears you. You have access to him. He bought that with his blood. And also look at the last phrase, and they shall reign on the earth. When we talk about heaven, we often think very risky thoughts, right? Very spiritualized view that somehow we're going to be on clouds with a harp singing. I hope you don't actually think that. But, <laughs> but it's true. It becomes a lot less solid when we start thinking about heaven. I, we need to remember our ultimate destiny is a new earth, a new, purified, perfect earth that will be very solid. 
When we think about heaven, and maybe we should just say new earth instead, when we think about the new earth, it says that we will reign with Jesus. When you think about eternity, think about gardens that bear fruit, so much so that one cluster of the grapes from it takes two men to carry. That's what Isaiah says it'll be like. Think about, think about meals with family or work that is satisfying and doesn't ever disappoint or produce thorns and thistles. Think about jumping and exploring and running and singing all to God's glory for eternity with a body that doesn't break down, without tears, without pain, without suffering. So we praise Jesus because of who he is. Now look at creation's response. It's like, um, you know when you see, have you ever seen um, when they test a nuclear weapon? And you see the big cloud go up and you see the shockwave go out. It's like a shockwave of worship going out in this section right here. It starts, the part we just read is the elders and the creatures nearest to the throne. They're saying, worthy, worthy are you to take the scroll. Then in verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and it keeps going out. It goes into all of creation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the camera has now panned out to all of creation and goes right back in that very core of worship, the four living creatures in verse 14 said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the day that we look forward to. That is the day we long for. How does that affect us today? How does that affect us now? Well, been looking at our values as a church, we said, and both as a church and individually, this event that we look forward to, it's like putting ballast in a boat, weight in a boat, weight that will keep the boat from being blown over when the winds come. When the winds come as a church, when the winds come as individuals, we look forward to that day and we say, longing. Jesus is going to conquer. He's going to reign. I can endure this because of Christ. And even think about our values. God-centered worship. Sunday morning is a microcosm of this day. Think about our outreach and how it's affected when we say every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Believers and unbelievers. You and I are in this scene. Look, 13 says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea. Believers and unbelievers all will bow the knee to Christ. Do you see the foolishness of rejecting Jesus? If you are here and you don't know him, realize you will bow your knee one day. Do it now joyfully, and you will have eternal life forever. Or do it then with ground teeth, and you will have eternal punishment forever. It's foolish to reject to 
walk through each one of our values. I, I do want to highlight, though, the one we talked about last week, gospel teams relationships. When the Bible talks about love one another and bear one another's burdens and talks about how we're to forgive and to overlook wrongs, it's not just random commands. This is how we put the gospel on display to the world. We give them, as the church, we are this little microcosm of what's going to be like that day when there is no more backbiting or slander or gossip or any of that on the new earth. And we give the world a picture, a little glimpse of what that is like. And you know what we show the world? When we overlook wrongs, when we forgive, when we have relationships that are unified and loving and changed by the gospel, we tell the world the gospel works. It actually does change people. It does what it says it will. That's why it's so important that our relationships reflect that. It's our witness to the world. It points to the worthiness of Christ that his gospel really does work. Well, Martin Luther is attributed with saying, there are two days on my calendar. Today, that day. And when that day overshadows your life and it's like a ballast in your boat that keeps you weighted down from blowing over in the wind, when you're looking forward to the day when Jesus is exalted, he's high and lifted up, and all of creation worships him, he is seen to be the one that fulfills Isaiah's and Daniel's and Ezekiel's and all of the Old Testament's hope. It's all summed up in him. All of history was moving towards God's plan to exalt his son. And when we long for that day, it changes how we live now. It changes how we think now. It changes what we value now. And I can't wait to be there with you singing on that day. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your majesty and your goodness. We praise you that you're, you are uh, excellent in so many different and diverse ways. You are the lion and the lamb. You are meek but powerful. You are the fountain of all joy. We want to rejoice in you, to know you, to look forward to this day, and we want Christ to be central in our hearts because he is the center of history. God, help us to focus on him, to love him, and to be shaped by this day. For his glory and in his name we pray.